Good morning and welcome to this podcast for Providence North Community Church. This morning we're going to be wrapping up our study in the book of Colossians and we've been studying through it. As we've been studying through it, it's naturally become one of my favorite books. You see, truth be told, I probably feel that way after every book we study, but it's true. I love how when we take the time to slowly and methodically walk through books of the Bible, the truth that is declared begins to take root in my heart. And the more it becomes a natural conversation piece in my life, and I love that. And this is huge for us as a church. When we begin to truly understand what Christ has done for us and how this then impacts our lives, we begin to think and live and act very differently. We begin to do things in this world and for others around us that is so counterintuitive that the world looks at the church somewhat dumbfounded. The natural ways the world might respond or act in different situations would be completely different than someone that's been wrapped up and changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is what binds us together as the church, and sometimes in the most difficult situations. And what we're going to see in today's text is no different. Now, before we get into the text today, the scripture we're going to be in, I have to admit that when I get to these sections of the Bible like we're going to be in today, I typically cruise through it without giving it much credence at all. Perhaps you're the same way, but when I get into the genealogy sections or the conclusions of personal letters and begin reading a bunch of names that you can't pronounce, I tend to check out. However, when we take the time to slow down and allow the text to reveal new things to us, you might be surprised what you find. And so the plan for us today is that we are going to cruise through the text. And what I want to do is I want to pick out a few names in here, some familiar, maybe some not so familiar, And I want to see how the gospel has impacted and changed them and called them to do things that are so different from how the world might respond. But in turn, it does show us just how impactful the gospel is in the lives of believers for the church as a whole and how it binds each of us together. Sound good? So here's where we're going to begin. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Colossians 4, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers of Lady Osea, and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read to the church of the Lady Oseans, and see that as you also read the letter from Lady Osea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And this is God's word. Now, if you've done a lot of reading in the New Testament, hopefully some of these names would ring a bell for you. 
You hear them, you recognize the name, but maybe you're not quite sure how they play a part in the New Testament. But what all these names do is tell us about the kind of relationships that Paul had. And when we dig deeper into them, we begin to see and recognize some pretty cool things. For instance, the name Onesimus. Let's look at verse 9 again. It says this, along with Tychicus, we are sending Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Now, Onesimus' names pop, he pops up in the letter of Philemon. And Philemon was a member of the Colossian church. But Onesimus was Philemon's bondservant, and he had ran away sometime before this letter, and he just kind of took off. Now, from what we have in the New Testament, it looks like that Onesimus was probably an unbeliever while he was a bondservant for Philemon. But there were several different kinds of bondservants during this time. Some were slaves who had been taken captive in war. Some were bondservants that were trying to buy back their freedom because they'd gone bankrupt. So they're basically selling themselves. They're selling their talents into slavery. Either way, we're not exactly sure what kind of servant Onesimus was, but we do know that he ran away. We're just not sure why, because the text doesn't really reveal to us if Philemon was being unjust or cruel with him in any way. But Onesimus, he saw this opening to run, and so he steals some of Philemon's money on his way out the door, and he just takes off. Now, this is a big deal, all right? In biblical times, this is a big deal. Onesimus is a bondservant. He's a slave to Philemon. He decides to run from his master. Not only does he run or escape, but he steals money on his way out the door. He ends up in Rome, and somewhere along the way, he bumps into Paul. And while hanging out with Paul, Paul does what Paul always does, and he shared the gospel with Onesimus. And in return, Onesimus places his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and he's changed forever. And now Paul refers to Onesimus as a son, as someone that he loves. Through sharing the gospel, through living life on life with one another, Onesimus becomes extremely dear to Paul. And so when Paul writes this letter to Philemon, he tells Philemon, hey, look, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. I'm sending my very heart. I'm not just sending a man back to you. I'm sending my heart to you. I love this man. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he may serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent. You see, Paul is saying in this letter to Philemon, he's saying, look, I really want to keep this guy because I love him. He's so dear to me. I need him, but I'm sending him back to you, Philemon, because that's the right thing to do. You see, Paul's looking at Onesimus and he's saying, you need to go back. That's what the law says, and that's what you need to do. Now, for us today, this might not seem like such a big deal, but let's put some perspective to it in terms of ancient biblical times, because this is literally a crazy thing for Paul to ask of Onesimus. And the world would look at it and say, Onesimus, no way, brother. Do not do that. For Onesimus, he's a runaway slave that's stolen his master's property, and he has no idea what's going to happen to him if he goes back. I'm sure in his mind he's kind of freaking out because we do have some historical records from this time. And they say that at one time there was a Roman dude who owned over 400 servants at this time in his life. But this guy, this, this Roman guy, he was murdered by one of the servants. So during the trial of this one servant, the prosecution argued that all 400 servants were guilty by association and therefore all 400 should be executed just to prove a point. They were thinking, we need to make an example of this guy. And guess what? The prosecution won. 
All 400 servants were publicly executed for the crime of one, just to prove a point. So I think we need to keep that in mind that this cultural precedent has been set during this time when it comes to crimes committed by servants. And Onesimus knows this. Paul knows this. So we have to see just how crazy this thing is that Paul is asking him to do. My guess is not many other people are willing to tell Onesimus to go back. I don't think many of us would even fathom to ask a friend to walk into the belly of that beast. We'd likely say, bro, you need to get as far away as possible from Philemon. In fact, Paul might be the only one telling Onesimus to go back. But when you have a bunch of people that have been transformed by the gospel, when you have a bunch of people that are desiring to walk with Christ, to live the way of Jesus, then this is what happens. Because when the gospel begins to take root in the lives of you and those around you, it binds you together in ways that are so counterintuitive and foreign to this world that people are taken aback by it. For example, in this passage, the gospel has bound Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon together in such a way that Paul has no problem challenging both of them in love and mercy and grace to do the hard things. That's just what we do as brothers and sisters in Christ. We love each other so much and desire the best in Christ for each other that we're going to challenge each other to do the hard things. Who else in the world would have told Onesimus to do this? To do what is right. Nobody. And not only Onesimus, but Paul is challenging and asking Philemon the very difficult thing. The one whose servant not only ran away from him, but stole from him. Paul is asking and challenging Philemon to forgive Onesimus. Philemon probably had people in his ear telling him to punish Onesimus and probably had every legal precedent during this time to do the complete opposite of what Paul is challenging him to do. And the things that Paul is asking these men to do aren't easy. They're difficult. But again, when we have a bunch of people who have been changed and transformed by the difficult thing that Jesus Christ did on the cross, then we start challenging each other to do difficult things in the same way. Back at the very beginning of this book, Paul says in Colossians 1 that Jesus made peace with everyone by the blood of the cross. He didn't just wave a magic wand in the air and say peace on earth and goodwill towards men. No, Christ had to die on the cross in order to bring that peace. So Paul is looking at Onesimus and he's saying, that's what Jesus did for you. That's what he did for you. He took, he laid down his rights. He laid down his position, his life to make peace with you. It might mean you doing the same thing to make peace with Philemon. But that's what's got to be done. And I love you, Onesimus. And because of my love for you, I'm going to challenge you to do what is right. And so for us today, I think the question we need to ask ourselves in light of this text is, do we have people in our lives that we have given the authority to speak freely and allow them to challenge us when needed? Or is there someone in your life that you need to challenge? Is there someone in your life that you've been sitting on the sidelines waiting for them to do what is right and have yet to speak truth and love and grace and challenge them? Because when the gospel takes root in our lives, we are then compelled to walk with others, to motivate others, to challenge others, to do what is right, to do the difficult things because we love them. Jesus loved us so much that he did the most difficult thing and died on the cross for us. How could we not do the same for others? When we move on, 
in Colossians, the next thing that we're going to see produced when the gospel binds people together is reconciliation. There's another name in this text that probably rings a bell for you. Look at verse 10. It says, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now, this guy's name, full name is John Mark, all right? And he's the author of the gospel of Mark. But before that, John Mark was a dude that totally bailed on Paul on one of his church planning trips. John Mark was one of Paul's main teammates. And rather than pursuing the mission with Paul to go plant more churches, John Mark decides not to follow. Look at Acts 13, 13. Acts 13, 13 says this. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, to be straightforward, we don't really know why John Mark bailed on Paul. Right? He could have been homesick, um, something like that. He could have been troubled by the work that's been done, the mission that was set before them. He saw the danger that was in it, and maybe he just didn't want to pursue that danger. Or what could have been a very likely situation is John Mark, being from Jerusalem, was watching and seeing Paul bring people to Christ. But it wasn't just Jews. He was bringing Gentiles to Christ as well. Paul was inviting Jews and Gentiles alike to be a part of this new church movement. And John Mark was like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not sure I like this. You see, whatever the reason is, whatever it is, we're not really sure. But what we do know is that Paul takes great offense to this. Paul's angry. He's upset with John Mark. He's upset that John Mark bailed on him during this time. And we know this because of what takes place later on in Acts, in Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas are about to head back out and to visit the same places they went before to plant the gospel. And John Mark comes back into the picture and he's like, hey, guys, I want to tag along. And Barnabas, being John Mark's cousin, is like, heck, yeah, dude, let's go. Let's get after this. But Paul's reaction is very different here. Paul's like, no way, bro. No way am I going to let you tag along after the way you acted last time. You bailed on us last time. And this time, I'm not going to let you screw things up like you did before. Look what it says in Acts 15. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them, the one who bailed on us in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And then arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. A sharp disagreement arose. All right, this is all caps here. This is one bad disagreement. These are two best friends Two men who've been living on mission together, who've been in the trenches together, who've been fighting for one another this entire time. And because this dude, John Mark, they decide to split ways. And Barnabas takes John Mark in one direction and Paul takes another man named Silas in another. Two best friends have been split apart by a flake named John Mark. And Paul wants nothing to do with this man. He doesn't even want to be around this man. But get this, just a short time later, and maybe this is just a guy thing. I could see two guys going like fisticuffs and just getting over it right after that. But a short time later, we're not sure what happened. As Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians, Paul has a much different attitude towards John Mark. Paul's in Rome with John Mark, and they're hanging out like they're the best of friends again. Something's happened. Something's changed in the heart of Paul. Paul's telling the Colossians, hey, if John Mark shows up, welcome him. Love him. Bring him in like I have done in Rome. Now, the reason this is – I make a joke about this, but the reason this is so important is because the world would be screaming at Paul and telling him, hey, dude, move on from that flake. 
Don't let this man that bailed on you once, once make a fool of you again, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Don't do it, Paul. But when the gospel invades our lives and it binds us together by the blood of Jesus Christ, it produces a desire in us to reconcile the relationships in our lives that we might think are unredeemable. It truly is amazing. See, the gospel has the ability to bring enemies and former friends and spouses back together for the purpose of reconciliation. That's just what happens when we live the way of Jesus. Why? Because this is what God did for us. This is what God did for us. God brought us back together with him. Before, Paul didn't even want to be around Mark, but now he doesn't even want to be apart from him. For instance, later on in his life, Paul's sitting in prison. He's about to be executed. He wrote a letter to Timothy. Listen to what he says. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to ministry. At the end of Paul's life, there's two people that Paul wants to see, Timothy and Mark. Even though Mark bailed on him before, Paul's like, this is the man I want to see. I love this man. He's useful to me. Bring him. Bring Mark. This is incredible. And for us today... There might be somebody in your life that you're, you were close with before, and things were tight and life sort of just drifted apart. It may not have been a harsh disagreement in feelings like Paul had towards Mark when he split from Barnabas, but for one reason or another, you felt it best to just distance yourself from this person. And perhaps Jesus is calling on you right now to reconnect, to re-engage, to reconcile with this person today, because the gospel is all about reconciliation. Again. Colossians 1, Paul says this, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Christ reconciled you to himself. He was apart from you, and he wants to be with you forever by dying for you. So maybe he wants you to die to yourself so that you can reconcile with that other person. Maybe it's your pride. Perhaps it's your sense of justice. Maybe it's you just being lazy. Whatever it may be, Christ is calling you to put down those things, to die to those things in order to reconcile. These are all questions that I have to ask myself often. Well, maybe not often, but when I find myself in disagreements with my wife. There are times where we find ourselves at a crossroads, and quite frankly, it'd be easier if we just did our best to move on without dealing with it. But when in life have the best things been the easiest things for you? Now, this may come as a surprise to many of you, but I have found myself at fault in the majority of our disagreements. Yes, it's true. But in order to reckon for reconciliation with one another, we've both had to die to ourselves in order to do so. Often, I have to die to my pride. I have to die to my ego being hurt. I have to die to my laziness of just wanting to ignore the problem and move on. Whatever it may be, this is the complete opposite of what the world tells me to do. Instead, because of the gospel, because the gospel has invaded my life and has now bound me together with my wife in Christ's great sacrifice for us so that we could be reconciled with our Heavenly Father, then how could I not lay down my life for her? Because the gospel is all about reconciliation. That's what it's all about. 
Now, the next character that we're going to look at, and this one gets me excited, really. I, I love this character. This is Jesus, who's called Justice. And the reason I love the fact that Paul mentions him so much is because he's mentioned nowhere else in the Bible. Absolutely nowhere. So why do I find this important for us today? I think this is important because what Paul is doing here is he's recognizing, celebrating the simple, the unglamorous. Look at verse 11. Along with Aristarchus and Mark, Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a great comfort to me. Now, the reason he has two names here is because oftentimes they would use names around Jewish friends and different names around their Gentile friends. Either way, we can't find either one of these names related to this man anywhere else in the scriptures. We have no idea who he was or what he did, and that's what makes this so exciting to find his name here. Here's why. There's a possibility that this guy never did a thing that was noteworthy. Nothing. He may have never done a single thing for anyone to take note of or mention. And so we have to ask ourselves, why does Paul mention him? Why is this so important to mention in a letter and we're still talking about it 2,000 years later and we have no idea what he did? Paul says he was a comfort to him. But how? How was he a comfort? Now, if I were to put myself in Paul's shoes today, and as a person who's been in ministry for a very short eight years, I would say he's probably been a comfort to him because he's just been there. He may not be doing anything that brings recognition or notice and glamour, but he's there. He's next to Paul. He's in the fight. Because again, when the gospel invades us and binds us together, we find ourselves doing things for one another, not for the purpose of recognition and glamour, but because we love each other and we're for each other. Paul is celebrating the simple, the unglamorous. Paul is recognizing those that are just there. Why? Because they bring comfort to him. And here's why I love this so much. Because it reminds me just how comforted I am by so many of you in this room. And <laughs> so many in our church, right? So many people in our church. Because there are so many people that are doing things and serving this church and serving God not for the purpose of being noticed, but to just be there. And on behalf of the staff and the leadership of Providence North, I can't begin to tell you how much comfort this brings to us. And so for a minute, I want to do just what Paul does. I want to recognize a few of those that you might not be aware of, but those that are serving in such ways that bring no recognition to themselves, but it brings comfort to me, and it should do the same for you. For instance, there is a team of people that are writing and prepping each week's lesson for our children. Every single week, there's people writing and prepping these lessons. But a couple of them have been on the team since basically day one. Rebecca Krug and Jen Neuenschwander. Most of you probably think we just download the lesson and move on. But in reality, these ladies and several others are organizing, writing, and making sure that each lesson that is taught is age-appropriate and that the gospel is declared in those classrooms. The future generation is hearing the gospel every single week because of the women that are writing, preparing these lessons, and then the volunteers, the shepherds that are teaching those lessons in the rooms every single week. It's amazing. We also have teams of people that come here Sunday morning, or they go to the church on Sunday morning. Again, we're on a podcast. So Sunday mornings, these, these people, they show up, they turn uh, Bonnie's dance studio into a place of worship. You may never see them. Some of you probably don't know what the place looks like outside of Sunday morning between the hours of 10 and 11, but it looks very different. 
just a few of these guys that are, that I uh, just come in every single week. They're all they're they're there always. They're always willing to work an extra week. Mitch Halquist, Colin Daly, Steve Matthews, and for some of you, he's known as Big Papa, but my father, Mark Agnew. These men and so many others come here and serve that you can worship freely without distraction. Eddie and Connor McGrath, Colin Hanfelt, Michael Thomas. These are men uh, that work the soundboard and the slide presentation in the back every single week. They do so not for the glamour, but so that, again, you have a place to worship Christ through teaching and singing. We have men and women counseling each other, discipling others, welcoming others in their homes, walking through real-life situations that are tough and dark and difficult to hear. Brandon and Tiffany Baker, who lead out our discipleship groups. Carrie Reddick, who's become such a rock for so many women in this church. Again, they don't do this in hopes of being remembered or noticed by others. They do it because God has gifted them through the Holy Spirit to listen and lead and disciple and counsel others, even in the most difficult of times. There's so many that I could mention, and they're so important to the church. But lastly, I want to mention this. I want to mention the spouses of the staff and the leadership of the church. The spouses of the staff and the leadership of the church, these are the unseen. These are the unglamorous. These are the often unrecognized roles in the church. It's the spouses that stand by the side and bear the burden of ministry with us. The ones that probably don't see, they don't know, they don't hear all the details of everything that is going on, but they definitely feel it as ministry has a tendency to bear down on those that are in it and leading it out. And they stand by them and they bring great comfort to those that are leading out. All of those, all these people I mentioned and so many more need to be celebrated. They need to be recognized. Why? Because they bring great comfort to me and I hope they do to you as well. Now here, this is, this is why this is so important for each of you. If you find yourself today feeling and thinking, man, how lame is this? The role that God has me in right now is just setting up chairs, changing slides, editing curriculum, listening to people's problems, welcoming people at the front door, uh, serving in the kids' classrooms, frankly, or just standing by those that are leading. And you find yourself looking for your sense of worth and value and identity in what you've done and what you're doing. Well, here's your hope. Here's what you should focus on. Because the incredible thing about the gospel is that you now get your worth and value and identity and not what you are doing, but what you have done or what you have done, but what Jesus Christ has done for you. It's all about what Jesus has done on your behalf. We want to say I'm worth something because I've done something big for the gospel. And Jesus says you're worth something because I've done something big for you. Paul said in Colossians 3 that you are the one you are one of God's chosen ones. You are holy. And beloved, that's all that matters for you. So you may be plugging away in your nine to five job providing for your family, or you stay at home and watch the kids and clean your house, or maybe now in light of what's going on right now, we're all staying home watching our kids and cleaning house. And you come to church every now and then, and you help in a myriad of ways that are available for you to do so, and all of that is amazing. I love this. I love how much our church serves just this in the most simplest of ways, in the most unglamorous of ways, and they don't do it for recognition or notice, but they do it just to be there. Know this, I'm comforted. I'm grateful for all of you. And we celebrate that. 
We celebrate that you are faithful to just be there in the simple and the unglamorous. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that compels you to do those things. Now, church, as you can see from just a few names I picked out today, the gospel has profound impact on the lives that we live and the relationships we find ourselves in and how we interact in those relationships. As the body of the church, the gospel calls us and challenges us to respond in ways that are completely different than how the world says we should, which is why I want to look at one last name this morning. Verse 17 says this, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. See that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. Church, We've been called into and wrapped up into something that is much greater than ourselves. The gospel has bound us together as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus and has given us a purpose that is otherworldly. We've been called into a ministry that we've received from Christ Jesus, and we are to live that out in our relationships and with others. And church, we're in a unique time in our lives. We're in a unique time in our lives where the possibility of living our lives in such a way that glorifies Christ could not be more important. It's during times like this that we have the opportunity to show the world that our faith in God is in a God that knows exactly who we are and what's going on. God is not surprised by the situation that we find ourselves in today. He is not. But we can trust that there is a purpose for it. In fact, Paul says this in Ephesians 2 verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, created to walk and live a life that is modeled after Christ, which God prepared beforehand. God in his infinite wisdom prepared beforehand the works that we have available for us today that we should walk in them. Church, it's easy to give way to fear. It is. With all the social media, with all the news, everything, it's easy to give away to fear. But when the gospel of Jesus Christ binds us together, when we choose to exhibit faith over fear, that's when the world will notice and God will be most glorified. So let's be a people who show Jesus to the world during a season of unrest. There's a quote that C.S. Lewis wrote over 72 years ago, and it's been going around this last week. And it speaks to this exact moment that we find ourselves in now. But he's writing to a people that were gripped with fear for the atomic bomb. Now for us today, I'm going to read it. And rather than quote the atomic bomb, like C.S. Lewis, I'm going to replace his words with coronavirus. All right. So here's C.S. Lewis's words 72 years ago and how impactful it is for us today. Here it is. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the coronavirus. How are we to live during this age of viruses? We might ask. I'm tempted to reply, why? As you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in the Viking Age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night. Or indeed, as you're already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, don't let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the coronavirus happened. And quite a high percent of us, of us are going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors. 
anesthetics, but we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which has already bristled with such chances, and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the point to be made. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together, church, to bind together as brothers and sisters in Christ. If we're all going to be destroyed by the coronavirus, let that virus, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about viruses. They may break our bodies, they can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. Church, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. It's such a timely reminder for us. We don't have to be a people that live in fear, but rather we can be a church that lives in faith, knowing that God has prepared this moment for us so that we may live out the mission he has set before us. And when the gospel binds us together as brothers and sisters in Christ, the world will look in and ask, what is that all about? What motivates them to live that way? And our response would be, because that's how Christ lived for me. It's all about him. Let's pray.